Hello and welcome to We're Watching What? Or in the case of today, we're interviewing who? I'm your host, Dana, or the DHKs I'm known. And I'm very excited because my guest today is Mike Lasker. He is a VFX supervisor over at Sony Pictures Imageworks and just so happens to have been the VFX soup on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. So that is what we are here to talk about today. Major spoiler alert for both the Spider-Verse films. He was also the VFX soup on The Mitchells vs. the Machines. He got a start as a generalist in New York and then sort of wound his way to his current path in feature animation. So like I said, major spoiler alert. You do want to have seen Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse because we go in depth into some of the sequences. And without further ado, here's we're interviewing who? I want to kick off with, you know, every studio is a little bit different. Can you walk me through the scope of what being the VFX soup at Imageworks entails? Like, what is in your purview? Or is it easier to ask what wasn't in your purview for the show? Uh, well, hi, and thanks for having me on. I think as a visual effects supervisor at Imageworks is one thing. And then as a VFX supervisor on a Spider-Verse film is another thing entirely. Because yeah. They're so artistically driven and you collaborate with the directors and the art team on the Sony animation side. And it's it's more of like a, a figuring it out, bouncing back and forth collaboration versus, you know, this is what we want it to look like. And so it's, it's really fun. I always tell people that my job is to bring the director's vision to life and to make their dreams come true, basically. And, and honestly, that's all I want to do. I want to make like the coolest images possible. So, you know, early on, especially in Spider-Verse films, we have to do tons of development. We look at artwork, we break it down. We're like, what are we going to have to replicate? What are we going to have to make move? Where's it going to break? So there's a lot of back and forth before you get images and paintings that represent the final look of the film and the final look at what they want. So you kind of really work with them to figure it out to some degree, especially on Across the Spider-Verse versus Into the Spider-Verse where, and Into the Spider-Verse, you know, it was, we didn't even know what we were making, you know, let alone what it was going to look like. It was, a, it was a lot of like figuring out and exploration and Across was just like that, um, but we knew each other a lot better and it allowed us to sort of collaborate better and sort of figure out how to make all these amazing paintings and images come to life. But to answer your question, I oversee virtually the whole production. Uh, animation, character animation is its own um, um, department. Unit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but other than that, I, I'm basically overseeing everything and bringing everything from storyboards to final imagery and just uh, helping them figure out how to make the best possible images and, and bring it to life. So what is one of the biggest lessons you learned on Into the Spider-Verse that y'all applied to across the Spider-Verse? You know, I think you, you, it was really an amazing project and you had to get used to failing a lot and succeeding. But what was really amazing about Into the Spider-Verse, because up to that point at Imageworks and I think across the industry, um, you were used to making things follow a certain photoreal driven look where you're making things look very crisp and clean, you know, the, trying to get your render times and your sophistication to a level. And with Into the Spider-Verse, you kind of rewired your brain because all of a sudden you're breaking all of these tried and true principles you rely on for these movies. And it comes down to like skin and hair and eyes and eye specs and leaves and grass and all of these things that you would follow the similar ways of doing it, the similar techniques, and you tore it all down. 
right? So <laughs> you basically have to toss everything away, which is stressful because, you know, you kind of have improving upon things show to show, even though the styles are different, the um, fundamentals are the same. And you're like reinventing everything, depth of field, lens flares, like everything. So Into the Spider-Verse really taught us that. And once you do that, it's hard to not. And that's why like when Mitchell's vs. Machines came along, it's like, thank God, it's another show to, to do that. And with Across the Spider-Verse, it was that to like the 10th degree. Um, but I think that was really the biggest thing that I learned from Into the Spider-Verse was just how to guide a team to know there are going to be challenges that we have to get over, to not get frustrated, to keep the ship going in the right direction, uh, and to keep everyone excited about it. That, that it's funny because just speaking of Mitchell's, you know, uh, I, I know that that was one that like really leadership was like all about keeping people going. You know, y'all had like, such challenges of making the board. And it, Mike is like the most positive sort of, we got it, guys. Like, don't worry. But like, there's no one more. There's yeah. No. So, but on a, on a Spider Verse, you know, a second, the second Spider, it's so, it's the, the nomenclature is going to get so confusing. When there's a third one, we'll have to say Spider Verse 2000 times. But, you know, what does the leadership sort of look like on this when you're facing the second one where you're like okay cool we've got this really amazing thing people responded really well to it are, are there stresses about living up to the sort of expectations of it or it's like hey we proved this with mitchell's like what is the sort of mental game going into a sequel like this i mean with with across the spider verse even before i started the project i just knew there, there's no getting away from comparisons there's no getting away from that thought of what are they going to do is it going to be bigger is it going to be better you know, obviously everything is story driven, but I think Into the Spider-Verse really showed what you can do stylistically in a movie. It was so different. You know, it, it was people got excited about the art style of the film and it was so amazing. And so going on to this one, I just knew that whatever we were going to do, it was going to have to it was going to have to be more sophisticated. What I what I wanted to do is take what worked the best from the first one and make that like the baseline for Across the Spider-Verse. So everything we did in Miles' world on the first one, and if you watch the first one, if you're familiar with it, we sort of evolved our tools over the course of that production. So like you can tell, at least I can tell, what were like the later sequences versus the earlier ones. So I wanted to take everything that worked the greatest and make that like the baseline to start with for Across the Spider-Verse. And, uh, but you know, Chris and Phil back, there are creative drivers, and then Justin Thompson, who I worked with, he was the production designer on the first one. Amazing, amazing artist, Patrick O'Keefe, production designer, brilliant. Uh, and then we had uh, Joaquin DeSantos and Kemp. I was so excited to work with Kemp after he worked on Soul. He was fantastic. So really amazing director team, amazing producers. They just really push and push and push you to break all the rules. And it was a blast. I mean, it was hard and challenging. But it was like, if you're an artist in this profession, I mean, it does not get better. And I tell all the artists, bring your ideas. We've got 3,000 shots, hundreds of artists. If you have an idea and it's cool, it's going to show up on screen. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. And we're back. Okay, so speaking of the rules, and since the film is out and everyone has hopefully seen it multiple times, I'm going to go into some of the spoilery, you know, sequences. But... Every character has their own sort of style. Every spider, you know, character 
person, not all people. So what are some of the different rules in terms of visualizations when they are not in their native Spider-Verse, right? Like, how do you differentiate them? I know some of it is in the literal design of them, but you have more worlds to deal with now. Yeah, it's tricky. And I think we really saw that on Vulture uh, early on in production because he was really our most complex character I think we've ever made. (laughs) He was the first major character we had that was so different than the world around him. How are we going to make him look? How is he going to integrate? Later on, we ran into that with Hobie Brown, with Punk, very similar. Uh, And then all the spider people, where you have tons of different render styles and visual styles. And one thing we do uh, in, you know, in the first movie we did that with with Noir and Spider-Ham, and we light everyone. Everyone is in the scene together. They're all getting hit by the same lights. They're all on set. And then once we light them, and animate them and render them, then we apply all of their styles. And it allows us to control how integrated versus how stuck out they look. Mm. So with like Vulture, Vulture is on sepia-toned paper. He's flying around in this blue and purple and green Guggenheim environment. And we want him to look like he's from a different universe, but not so stuck out that he looks pasted on. So because we've rendered him in there, we can control how much bounce light he's getting from the environment. His light direction is the same as Gwen's. And, you know, we may have to light him a little differently because he's graphic, but it gets everyone to live together. And it allows us on a shot-by-shot basis to control it. So every shot's different. And that was the big thing. You never want two shots or two looks to be the same because it plays into the artistic nature of it. So with Punk, same thing. You really want him to stick out, but not too much. He's still casting shadows. He's still touching things. and, And you see contact and reflections and... But we were able to kind of control that. I just, my mind breaks at the thought of like how heavy some of those scene files might be. (laughs) It's just like, oh my goodness. Like, especially the crowd ones. And I know some of it's probably like, you know, not auto-generated, but you know, there's, there's, there's formulas for it. But I was just like, wow, this is a lot of render time probably that you've learned from the first to speed up on the second. (laughs) Well, and what was crazy is talking about the Guggenheim, we had, I would say, five or six versions of the Guggenheim. Because first, you know, it's pristine and then it's destroyed. So you have to deal with destruction. But when you're shooting in there and say you're you're at the ground level and you look up, we built an extra tall version of the Guggenheim. Mm. So because like the real Guggenheim, you're kind of you, you kind of have a certain amount of floors to play with and a structure. But because this is a movie and we can do whatever we want we would make extremely tall versions. So when you look up and that skylight is way up top, or we would scale it wider. So if if Jessica Drew is on her bike riding on that side rail and you're kind of going around in a circle, you want this thing to be huge. So we really played a lot with scale environments, moved things around, played into the stylization of it. Uh, but it was a lot of sets, a lot of heavy stuff. And then you start destroying it, there's rubble, and it just gets nuts. That's super cool, actually, that instead of it being sort of a trick of cameras or whatever, it's actually a practical, you know, not practical, but you know what I mean, but like, it's a, it's a set that gets swapped out because like, you can do that. Well, <laughs> it's, it's both. I mean, you, you know, you're definitely playing with lenses and layout, adjusting an anim, but you know, to a degree, that's only gonna get you so far. If right. you want that thing, you know, this, this road that Jessica Drew's driving on to feel like it's going off and arcing into the distance, yeah. you need to scale that out. And um, yeah, so we, it was very intricate going through shots. We had tracked 
What's the tall Guggenheim? What's the short Guggenheim? What's, we had five destruction variations. So destruction layer one was just blasts from bombs. And then you had broken railings and then floors destroyed. We had wires coming down. So it was just a lot to sort of track. I, I love that sequence so much. And I, I also love, so you have like the two characters, you know, or two worlds coexisting. And then you have these very sort of cartoony, like flap, you know, just adding a third level of stylizing to it. And you're like, what universe are we in at this right. point? And that was one of the first sequences we did in Gwen's world was the most complicated look of the film. It was so painterly. Every shot was had to be lit and colored differently. We had huge color scripts from visual development that we had to follow. And then we would do it. And you'd watch it together and we'd figure out what didn't work. So then we'd go back and make, you know, like when Gwen goes to see her father, you're the end of the film. And that's when we're pushing her colors and her world and her mood ring, like, like a hundred times, like full on. It was just so shot to shot driven. It was really, really complex. And we've got dripping paint and soft brushes and line work. And her look has different looks within the look. Sometimes it'd be frisketed white when she swings out of her window on her way to the Guggenheim and you're just going to just the blank paper, you know, basically her focus drove the look of that sequence. Um, but yeah, every world, every style was different and tough in its own way. Yeah, I mean, you've just brought up my favorite sequence, I think, in the entire film, because I think it's such a beautiful moment where the visual style and the story are so perfectly in sync. And so could you talk a little bit more about it? Because like, you know, literally the world lightens as they clear the air and I was just like the the number of screen minutes for that sequence versus what it gets accomplished is so impressive where you know they're changing colors like they're actual characters but but still as an audience we have to like be able to connect to them and like not be jarred by it so like what was the secret sauce (laughs) how make movie (laughs) it was really because we're talking about the Guggenheim and we're talking about this sequence it was really interesting because we have to build and develop these tools from scratch. They just didn't exist. So when we started production, we're working on that Guggenheim sequence and it was tough. We were trying to figure out the style, how to make painted walls and dripping paint. By the time we worked on the later sequence, which the little we're talking about, Mm -hmm. our tools were much faster, Mm -hmm. more artistic friendly. We had come up with an amazing workflow where we did a, a blocking pass of colors and light that matched all the, the, the color keys that we got. So we could kind of block it out very quickly and then go back and start painting. So we would show our blocking pass to the directors uh, and producers and make sure everyone liked how it was flowing. And then we would go back and start the painting and all the detail. And I tell you, that sequence was so pushed. Like when, and I know I'm jumping back and forth between the Guggenheim sequence. At the end of the Guggenheim sequence, when Gwen and her father have that moment. We call that Gwen vision where mm-hmm. amps up and the colors get hyper, you know, real and the background fades off. And we thought that was crazy at the time. <laughs> and then at the end of the movie, when she goes back to see her father, we pushed it like even more, but it was really amazing. We would, I would sit in rounds or doing shots with, with the artists and the supervisor. And we were like, we can't believe we're making a movie that looks like this. It is crazy. But I loved how it it went along depending on their emotions and the story and by the end when it gets all bright and you have that moment and then she gets punk's watch i just i love i just love that sequence i i do too i i 
I was blown away by it. I feel like when Beyond the Spider-Verse comes out, you'll be like, oh, that's the one that was we did at the end of the pipeline. <laughs> versus You'll be like, mm, that was the easier one. And that'll probably be the baseline we start with for the next one. You well, know. then it will be a gorgeous film. You, you, you sort of get a vision of the script. Um, I'm sure you get a lot of like art that is inspiring, stuff like that. Were there any moments that you thought or scenes or effects that you're like, this is going to be so challenging. And then it ended up being sort of smooth in execution versus <laughs> something that seemed like, oh, this should be easy. And we're an absolute nightmare. You know, what I thought was really going to be hard was Punk's World. Because it mm. all cut and pasted. We've got cops who are actually these pig characters, but you can't see them. Um, you've got these cops and it's all cut and pasted and, and posters and you know you have them jumping off the top of the building like we did in the first movie where we introduced all those characters and thought it was going to be really really hard and we actually were able to do it relatively quickly and painlessly and it was uh, because of the amazing artists that we had uh, but that ended up not being quite as hard as I thought it would be. Things that were harder Basically everything else. No, like um, that's fair. <laughs> you no, know, I mean twenty ninety nine's world um, was was challenging. Um, you know, India was very challenging. The scope of that city, Mumbatan, was so huge. And the and what's amazing is you have this destructive battle sequence in the middle of the movie, where you have Alchemax coming down and crashing through all of these buildings, and you know as it collides down into the bridge below. And that ended up being a really, really hard because we, we got a lot of our sets near the end and we had to get all of our line work and all of our stylization and we had dark matter inside the smoke and we had to figure out what that looked like. So the India stuff ended up being pretty challenging, almost more from a traditional visual effects scope, like we're, we're like any destruction sequence in any movie, it was like that on top of all the stylization we had to do. So I would say that turned out to be pretty challenging because it happened late in production, uh, a lot of that stuff. So tons of just effects pushing through, tons of data, like what you were talking about before, high render times. Yeah. Huge amounts of effects data, um, which took up a huge portion of our storage at the company. So like really, really, but I mean, I just love how it turned out. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. We haven't talked about Spot yet, who, you know... Is, is a challenge because he's an effect unto himself. You see a character like Spot, do you go, cool? Or do you go, oh God, all right, here we go. Well, Spot was really interesting because he went through a lot of design changes during pre-production and production. And what was really interesting about him was he's like the absence of the shot. He basically looks like the shot has been erased and then you've drawn him back on there. And we used a lot of our tools that we created for all these other worlds, he actually encompasses all of the tools in one character. So, you know, the, what we always want to avoid is things looking too static and too painted on. Yeah. So all of his line work as he moves is redrawing. All of his brushwork is repainting. And visual development did a really good job. They gave us a breakdown of how he's created. And you almost build him up like an artist would build up. So you start with paper, you lay down an ink wash that's like his shadow. You know, you you draw like the like the basically architectural kind of anatomical sketches of him first. Then you put down the ink wash. Then you paint like white brushstrokes on top of that. That's like his lighting, and that covers up the line work. But you see the line work in the ink washy shadow. So he looks very traditionally made. And then you have all of his spots, obviously, which 
animation controls. They were like their own little characters moving around. And then we had effects use this really cool sort of wet ink um, tool that we had on top of that lighting control, the different uh, aspects of how the edges of the spots look, whether they were clean and graphic or when they get crazy as he figures out his powers, you know, how to enhance it. So he, he looks very simple, especially near the beginning of the movie, but he's very complex and he has the ability to just change throughout the movie as he figures out his, his, his powers and as we want to push him. And then obviously he gets crazy off the rails at the end of the movie when he becomes the true villain that he becomes. Yeah, he's, he's I, I don't even know if he's reached his final form. I'll have to watch the third one to find out. But was there a general philosophy to sort of the, I guess like the keep alive of effects, right? Because like, as you mentioned, you want them to feel alive and vibrant, but not distracting necessarily. So is there is there like, did you all figure out, okay, well, if we ramp it up to like 30%, if they're not the main focus and they're not like actively engaged in, a, you know, a power right now, you know, we're like figuring out that balance. Yeah, it's tricky because, you know, like I said, you always want things to feel alive. So right. Punk would have a lot of line work and all these edge ripped edges around him. But if he's just kind of sitting there static, I don't want any movement. Mm -hmm. Soon as he starts to move, you want everything to sort of move along with him. So, you know, if he's sitting there motionless, all that movement will be distracting from his performance. So right. you want it all to play together. Vulture 2, all of his line work's moving. Uh, spot, all of his line work's moving. And depending on distance from camera, what the performance is, what the emotion is, you constantly have to adjust it. So when I would sit in rounds, effects would show me their line passes. And we'd see it and be like, oh, it's a little too fast. It's a little too thick. It's a little distracting. You almost just want to buy it and not notice it. Because if it's stuck in static, you're going to notice that. Right. Moving too fast, you're going to notice that. So it, it just has to feel alive and you just have to not notice it. But there's no silver bullet fix for it. Shot to shot, performance to performance, it always changes. That's wild. And again, mind-boggling in terms of just like moving pieces, literally. <laughs> The more you do it, everyone sort of gets into the rhythm and they know yep. it's going to work more quickly. And it was like that for everything in the production. Okay. Do you have a favorite overall Easter egg? Yes. Can you share it? Or is it like, has anyone discovered it yet? Um, I actually put it out there on Twitter. Otherwise, I don't think anyone would have known what it was. Okay. Um, but uh, near the beginning of the movie, uh, during Gwen's intro and she's traveling on the subway and she comes off, the, the, the subway stops, and you see her in her hero outfit. And the subway doors open, and she's back in her street clothes. And she walks out and turns. There's a subway ad above her head in the subway. In, in New York, in subways, you have very elongated ads. And it's my daughter and her oh. band. <laughs> and it's her, like, an album release. And, oh, uh, God, and I love that. It was great. It wasn't even my idea. Like, the directors do my daughter as a singer. They're like, oh, we should do an ad. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, so that's something that no one would have, would have known. That's, that's uh, amazing. Also, the first thing that you said, well, the first thing that popped to mind when you said long soap ads was, Dan Smith will teach you guitar. <laughs> like, no, I mean, I worked at New York subways for years. I've been in New York. And, uh, I, so I had a question about that because you, um, you, you, you were working as a generalist in New York in like mostly ads, right? Um, in like the mid 2000s. I was just getting started doing that in the mid 2000s. And I don't know if you can say, but like, what were some of the houses you were at? <laughs> So my first job was at a company called Click3X. I know. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and uh, at the time, they were uh, all over. They were in San Francisco. They were in New York. But I came in as an intern. 
um, because the head of CG, I used Alias Power Animator, the precursor to Maya in school. Yeah. And I basically came in and kind of clawed my way into a paid sort of freelance position and I, all types of commercials, uh, you know, of all scales. And then uh, I worked there for like a year and a half. It was great. I, I would run inner office envelopes, <laughs> two different offices across Madison Square Park in the Flatiron Building. Love that. And then after that, I worked for years doing architecture and medical animation, previs and stuff like that. And then my third job in New York was really, I did the most high-end work. We would do Super Bowl ads and really high-end animated characters. And um, I really learned that I loved animation in that job because we would do fully animated characters in, in commercials. And then uh, Sony put out a, an ad for artists and Monster House was my first movie. And I went out there and I worked on Monster House. And that solidified sort of my love for, for animation. But, you know, I'm from New York, New York. I feel like it was a training ground for a work ethic and handling stress that I had never felt the equal to. Because mm-hmm. I worked on little teams, all-nighters all the time. My first day at my second job was an all-nighter. My first day. Yep, been there. <laughs> like, you know, once you embrace that you're going to be there all night, it's kind of not that bad. But I got a really funny story. If, if uh, Please. Uh, <laughs> Well, it was at the second job. I was like lowest on the totem pole. And back then you had to send out your work on tape to the client. Yep. He had to get it to FedEx by nine. Yeah. It was like 8.50. They're laying it off to tape. They held the door open to the edit bay. They held the elevator. And as soon as they they got it laid off, they gave it to me and I ran. And I ran across down the elevator up Fifth Avenue. I slid over the hood of a taxi cab. (laughs) On like 17th Street. Oh my God. We get it there by nine and I got it there like just in time. But That's so impressive. It, it's so like something that would never happen now. <laughs> but it uh, would- <laughs> You'd be surprised. We we had someone, we worked on like Olympics and Super Bowl stuff too. And we had to fly someone overnight with a tape to Vancouver for the Olympics. They were like, who has a passport? <laughs> But I feel, I feel like, you know, uh, you know, especially with you being a, uh, starting in gen- as a generalist, like it gives you yeah. the eventual roots to like deal with all the different departments you have to deal with now, I would assume. Without a doubt. I mean, I used to do cloth simulations, effects and modeling, you know, rendering, lighting. I mean, every aspect of the pipeline and it really teaches you, it, you figure out what you gravitate to more. Yeah. But also as you go in and you work on these big productions and especially when you become a VFX super, a CG soup you know the pipeline and allows you to, to get the best work through the, the more the, the most quickly and allows you to, to talk to the head of CFX or to talk to the head of effects because you know the work, you know, you know what goes into it. Um, and I just love to light. I love look dev and lighting and that's kind of where I gravitated towards. But yeah, being a generalist is invaluable and it's not just for animation, for other types of professions too. It always serves you best to learn the most so you can relate to everyone you're working with. Yeah, so you at least have like a base vocabulary. So this is a broader one. What is the first film you saw in theaters that you were the impetus for going to? It's not like your parents or your family dragged you along, but you're like, I want to see this thing. Interesting question. I mean, I was a Star Wars fanatic. Never heard of her. (laughs) I, you know, a, A New Hope came out when I was one. So I didn't see that one in theater, but... I would have to say probably Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi mm. because I was just obsessed. Um, 
back then. And, and just like, I love Star Wars up through the years. And I would say I probably forced my parents to take me to that. That's got to be the first one. Because as a young kid, I, I think it was before I even had a love for movies, I had a love for those movies. And the toys and everything that went along with them. I mean, it was just insane. I mean, I had every little Star Wars toys. All of the old ones that are worth tons of money now. Yeah. Of course, I don't have them anymore. because Of course not. There was no forethought. Maybe my parents for it, but I won't for throwing them away. But um, but uh, yeah, that I, I'd say that was that was that was it. Okay, then I, I have a sense of where this question might be going. Then, but growing up, who was your favorite fictional character? Well, to could, could be books, could be movies, could be TV. You know, I I loved Darth Vader. I still love him. You know, as a character, I think he's the greatest villain of all time. I really fell in love with Lord of the Rings. As I got older too, he, I became, I became a massive Lord of the Rings geek for a while. I read all, every book, you know, I saw, saw the movies. I kind of pull, made myself pull back. I, I, I reached critical mass. I had to move on with my life. <laughs> um, you know, I think I really discovered it, you know, when the movies came out, it, it fired that love uh, that I had, but I read the Hobbit when I was really young and I always kind of loved fantasy and stuff like that. But Oh man, I loved Lord of the Rings. Like read those books multiple times. Even like the Silmarillion and all the ultra, oh, yeah. ultra d- deep stuff. Oh yeah, the, the, I even read the, the Children of Huron and like the like later stuff that the son that Christopher oh, did. I was just like, let's go. I read that book too. I didn't love it as much, but um, yeah. <laughs> what powers would your personal nemesis of the week have? Show my enemy. Yes. What powers would they have? So I would assume that they, you know compliment reverse compliment your strengths <laughs> you know i always <laughs> i always like to be i always like to get and as you saw be punctual yeah get places you know i'd hate to be i hate to be late more than anything i'd rather not go <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so i think my nemesis would be someone who is just really slow like a really slow driver on my commute home i would say is my nemesis like I take these canyon one-laid roads on my way home from the office and I get stuck behind these really slow five-mile-an-hour drivers, I'd say, probably my nemesis. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 that's an interesting question. Obviously, no one that could physically harm me. Well, you don't know, but, but it's very funny because it, that's a very like LA answer now versus I bet back in the day, it'd be like a slow walker in New York. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. Like, it's funny because my dad and I used to, my dad worked in Manhattan for years and, you know, I, I ran track. I was a runner in, in like, I remember I went to work with him when I was young and I couldn't keep up with him. He walked, I couldn't keep up with, with him. I'm like, the mode he would go into to walk through Grand Central up to his office, I was like, this guy's a machine. Um, so yeah, the slow walker is definitely, uh, you know, people getting in the way. Yeah. Um, you know. People with a lack of spatial awareness, it sounds like. Yes. Exactly. There we go. And <laughs> on their phones crashing into you because they're not looking. And, yeah, I, I'm with you. I want to go back to what you said in the beginning about sort of failing and succeeding and just having to get used to that. Yeah. How do you define personal success now, and how has that definition changed from earlier in your life? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. You know, I got into this business because I wanted to make cool images no one ever seen. And I thought that, like, visual effects, CG was the place to do that, just to create, especially growing up with Jurassic Park, Terminator 2, love that stuff. It got me to love 
CG. And that's all I wanted to do. And I think early on, I wasn't as much onto the artistic end that I am now with these films. So creating just really cool, um, you know, whether it's live action visual effects, like on, uh, I did this shot on Edge of Tomorrow where Tom Cruise drops out of the drop ship and the camera's flinging around him and it lasts for like two minutes. And it was just a really amazing shot, tons of work. I had to put in all these javelins that the aliens were firing and time it out. And that really excited me. But now I get so much more excited about this type of work that is uh, making images no one's really ever seen and being able to see how people react to it. And especially with this movie, the connection people have, and that now they're looking for these really push styles. That's what excites me. That what, what's what makes me happy. And honestly, I usually can't watch anything I do. I'm never, I'm always kind of cringing because I'm like, that could have been better or that's a mistake. But with this movie, I'm just so happy with the end product. I can watch it and be happy and be satisfied that we did the best job we possibly could do. You know, it was it was so hard and um, made something I could be proud of. And that is what really jazzes me up. Okay, that's a perfect segue into my, my actual last question is going to be, because I was literally writing it. <laughs> is there a sequence? I'm sure you're, I mean, obviously you're proud of the whole film, but is there a particular sequence you are most proud of? You know, it's funny. I, I love listening to the soundtrack, Daniel Pemberton and Metro Boom and great music. And you kind of listen to it and it kind of takes you through the movie every time you listen to it. And I just love the latter part of the movie when basically you go from starting with the chase through spider headquarters where all the spider people are chasing miles down into the underbelly where he swings down which is a we, we built out that underbelly environment you barely see it and then he goes up has his moment with peter and then he really runs off to that big train chase basically from the train chase to when Margot spider bite looks miles in the eyes and lets him go home i and honestly then when he's running and he doesn't know where he is and he's in earth 42 but that whole section because the music the music is hitting on all cylinders the action is great the stylization is going nuts it's just exciting when miles and miguel have that moment on that train it's just off the rails like literally in, you know, they're underneath the train on the cars and it's all streaking. I mean, that is my favorite part of the movie. You know? It's a good one. It's a, it's literally off the rails because I don't think there are rails to the moon as far as I could tell. No, no, there were no rails. It was, it was, it would like fit itself on the sides of that highway. Really yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I love this movie so much. If you can't tell, congratulations. It is such a baller film. I can't wait to see the next one. I assume you're working on the next one, but I want to presume, but yeah, y'all did such a good job and, and thank you so much for having me. It was such a delight to talk to you. Too. This was really a pleasure. Uh, an amazing time. A huge thank you to Mike. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is out now on digital and Blu-ray, and it is truly one of my favorite films of this year. And the, you know, both the films I think are just such an achievement in artistry and storytelling and of course visuals. So that has been it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you could leave us a five-star rating, a review, or even consider subscribing.